From the Duck South Studios in Oxford, Mississippi. We're mass communicating. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for them. This is the End of the Line Podcast, powered by DuckSouth.com. I give it a, uh, a 10. A 10. Sweep the leg. You have a problem with that. And now, here's your host, Rocky LaFleur. I bet you slice into the woods a hundred bucks. Gambling is illegal at Bushwood, sir, and I never slice. Also starring Josh Webb, Jake LaTondras, Rob Kroon, David Ellis, and Ramsey Russell. Showtime. All right, here we go. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. Showtime, everybody! Showtime! Welcome to the End of the Line Podcast. I'm Rocky LaFleur in the DuckTouch Studios in Oxford, Mississippi. Joining me from Canada, Double R2, Mr. Ramsey Russell. Ramsey, how are you? I'm doing good, Rocky. Man, I just another day in duck season somewhere. And it's uh, been raining for three or four days, which is no fun to hunt with in Canada. But uh, boy, today it is beautiful, sunshiny, and um all the fields are golden it's just it's great wonderful glad to be here what's the temps uh it's absolutely beautiful man it's it's uh 45 or 50 degrees in the mornings and uh i think this morning at daylight it was 39 degrees and it, now, now I'm, also, I'm sitting out here in shorts and a t-shirt but it's probably 55 60 beautiful just gorgeous weather hey you, you my wife was telling me how hot it was last week in mississippi <laughs> Her flowers were wilting and hotter than Hades. And I said, baby, if you're trying to make me feel bad, it ain't working. You know, because I'm, I'm happy where I'm at right now. Do you, do you understand that you're living every human being or every male's dream? And not in the way that you what, not in the way that you think what I'm about to say. It's not the chasing ducks factor. Yeah, that's great. That's awesome. Being being able to go out and chase waterfowl, but you know what you ought to put up on your site: chase the cool tips with me. No oh boy, you know there's a downside to that, Rocky, and it's uh, I do I did the last few years I spent a lot of time in you know thirty five to fifty five degree weather, and the downside is opening day of dove season. I mean, I'm, my, my heat tolerance out there in that hot sunflower field gets shorter and shorter. And fortunately, um, for, fortunately, I shoot well enough not to have a heat stroke before I have to leave the field. You know, and, and uh, <laughs> I've witnessed that. I agree. Woo, I've, I've witnessed buddy, that. Let me before. tell you what, though. I, I don't. I don't. Th- this year we this year we got out there, and I was right up. I was out in a sunflower field, and there were three telephone poles down a down a turn road, and I found one. And about every two and a half minutes, I'd have to pick up my bucket and move to stay in that little foot-and-a-half-wide shadow. And, uh, of course, Cooper was behind me, so she had that shade and my shade. She didn't have anything in the sun. But it, it was rough, man. It, it's hot, you know. But, yeah, man, I love the uh, – it's, it's like it's like uh, 200 days of duck – 200 days of a duck season is like 200 days of good air conditioning, good weather, you know. But happy to be I'm here, gonna, man. It's been, it's been a fun trip coming up. But I, I got to tell you, it, I, I've been on the road since September third, and it's been a it's been a great and eventful trip. I, I got I stopped off and met with uh, 
branched the rocky over at Boss Ammo and got a got a full tour of their plant, which was just unbelievable. I mean, I you don't realize how how little I I didn't realize how little I learned in physics and chemistry until I hang around with a guy like that. And Rocky, I'm gonna tell you that 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 um uh, that that man is so smart. All I could think I. All I could think of telling Nita when she asked me how to go, I said, I feel like the greatest underachiever in the world. I just met one of the smartest people I've ever met, you know, and hardest workers and, and everything else. But then I, but then the fun started because I stopped hunting with some good friends up in uh, up in, up in Michigan. I'd always wanted to hunt Michigan, hunt those big Canada geese, and then I jumped over and hunted uh, in Minnesota. And, and, again, the big Canada geese season was going on now. I'm in Saskatchewan, and, it, and it's just uh, – I really like shooting these great big Canada geese. Not not the park ones back home, but the, the big ones. I, I really like, and I, I think we've got some, had some interesting conversations about it all uh, for the folks to listen to later on about these moat migrators and stuff. Hey, speaking of interesting conversations, I want to start this out by saying, man, I apologize. I've been dealing with an accountant all week. Podcasts have been slow to come out. Even Ramsey had to jump out on his own and record with Ira on the Innovator, uh, the third part of that podcast series. I was like, Ramsey, and my account is breathing down my neck. You, can you record? And you're like, yeah. So, say all that to say this. Number one, I apologize. But number two, so what did y'all talk about? Because it's coming up in just a second. Well, we're, we're you know, we had a real good conversation uh about about you know he's out of college um somehow or other future employer didn't find out about the about the frat house and the, and the wild party you know and uh and all that good stuff so he so he actually landed a job in his in his first uh his first three years out of college uh very very interesting and entertaining to say the least uh parts of it made me very glad i'm not a veterinarian and and the uh and then, and then he jumped out beyond that and started started as a young man building his own career. And, and just like a lot of people, you learn, you know, uh, we talked about Rocky's foundational principles. I mean, you know, a lot of hard work and a lot of uh, a lot of dedication and a, and a lot of sleepless nights and and uh, perseverance and, and a little innovation. You know, breaking off into into different parts of the vet field that uh, maybe had been overlooked by the average guy. And 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 uh, somehow or other, because we're both duck hunters, and it's hard not to talk about. You know, the, the fun part to me, we're we're looking at a timeline that kind of ends around 1998, which, which was a pretty pivotal year in the in the waterfowling world, if you think about it. I mean, there there's a lot of topics that we broached um, and talked about, and remembered and reflected back on that emerged um, in the late 90s, and and just had a real good conversation, Rocky. I think I think everybody's going to enjoy it. I think I think you start seeing light light at the end of the tunnel. I, I really think you right out of right out of college. You know, he threw himself in his career, but as a hunter, you know, you you start seeing in parts of his story where Ira is head that the light at the end of the tunnel ain't really just veterinarian science. It's it's a whole lot of outdoor stuff fixing to come down the road for him. Well, that's coming up here in just a second. But before we roll over into that, we want to tell you about toe tags. Ramsey, you're using the toe tags up in Canada. And when you're Rocky. in Michigan, right? <laughs> Anybody that listens to that podcast and it does not, does not tag their birds anymore. Uh, but, but do you know, 
everybody, everybody that I have hunted with is tagging birds. And I mean everybody is tagging birds. Everybody in Michigan that I hunted with, everybody in Minnesota that I hunted with, and and all of the guides up here uh, that I'm, I'm hunting with in Saskatchewan, those birds don't leave the field without being tagged. You know, and I, I, I've been I've been kind of smart looking around, you know, uh, but it's the truth. I mean, it, it really is kind of the cool thing. And as, and as I was talking to somebody about it the other day, I'm like, you know, here we are hunters, conservationists. Hunting is conservation. And we're funding, we're putting the bill for, for most, if not all, of wildlife, meaningful wildlife conservation. And, you know, I, I guess we kind of owe it to ourselves to, 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 to know and follow and comply with laws, whether we, we've done it in the past, whether we, we've uh, been aware of it in the past or, or been ignorant to it or whatever. You know, just because the state, the states and, and, and up here in Saskatchewan, we talked to a provincial wildlife officer yesterday that knew, knew nothing about it, doesn't enforce tagging, but the feds do. They, they they absolutely do. They 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 come down hard on these 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 guys and outfitters uh, about about tagging and possession and everything. Brian Warden has, has talked about from toe tagging to the uh, migratory bird preservation facility. I've seen those things uh, being used up here now. And I mean, you know, it it really is kind of a cool thing, I guess. You know, this day and age, uh, it is cool to tag your birds in a bay and 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 comply. You know, and uh, I don't think Be any legal. of listening want to get crossways with 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 federal governments in any country. So heck yeah, man, I've I've got a stack of them uh, in my truck, and and just like Ryan said, you know, we we get done, and uh, we lay those birds out. And if it's going to be a long cordwood pile, which we hadn't done, they're the tag on the end of the rope, and, and when they're on straps, it's tagged. And then it goes in the outfitter's truck or or into the the, uh, the hunter's truck in the case of, you know, some of these guys I've been hunting with that aren't outfitters. Uh, nobody takes anybody's birds anymore that aren't tagged. And that that's, Rocky, that's a good thing, man. Oh, I agree. Well, look, you can get those tags, ducksouth.myshopify.com. Those go directly through Duck South store, go directly to Ryan. Ryan will fulfill the orders. But it's a way of supporting Ryan and the podcast because the podcast gets a small portion of those sales. So, Ramsey, let's get to that interview with Ira now. I'm really looking forward to it. All righty. Ira, how's it going? Man, it's going good, buddy. It's hot over here. I guarantee you that. I'll be dying. Been, uh, been up at the farm here for a couple of days, working on a big pit install. Um, you know what we don't? We have a lot of stuff at Locust Grove, which is our personal place, but uh, we we don't have like a totally dialed-in thermonuclear frozen tundra go-to spot that's plug-and-play. But we're going on here, so I mean it's a pretty cool project. What do you, what do you describe? I saw you describe it as thermonuclear. On on the, on your uh, social media, what what are you calling that? Y'all gonna have a kitchen and all that good stuff? My no, friend? no, I, I'm. We are gonna have a kitchen in there, just a little one. We'll just do a propane cook stove. But no, when it gets so cold, you know, and everything's froze, you know, five inches thick with ice, um, you know, we're gonna have a, a 
well discharge and ice eaters right there to where we'll always have a nice clean open hole and uh so it'll mainly be for shooting geese but also you know if ducks still open we can shoot ducks too um but you know just a traffic spot not anything wherever you know there's a, beast, a whole bunch of stuff living but uh you know you catch a little warm warm up or you catch a, a big cold front and you know just try to catch some of that traffic that's looking you know what i mean those birds that are that are just searching one way or the other. They're coming from the north, running from the cold, or they're coming from the south, looking for open water. And, you know, if you don't have a spot like that, and they end up spending so much time trying to get a hole ready, and it's ugly, and it's just a daggum mess. You know what I mean? You know, some of those boys down in Louisiana are going to love y'all having that kind of blind up there to shortstop their ducks. You know that, right? Yeah, I mean, we'll mainly be shooting stuff. They never see us cry babies. We'll mainly be shooting big sky pandas out of it. But we'll shoot yeah. we'll shoot whatever else is legal. You know that I'm not picky. Heck, I shot parakeets with you, and I was shooting sore rails yesterday. <laughs> oh, gosh. It's hot down there. I guess it is hot as Hades down. I talked to my wife. She said it was 100 degrees back home. Yeah, yeah I said, too. well, if you're trying to make me feel bad for being in Canada, I'm not. It was it was 45 degrees this morning, warmed up to about 65 degrees, and we're shooting birds. So uh, I'm, I don't, uh, I don't, I don't feel guilty or bad at all about it. But, uh, I guarantee hey, I'd rather be up there shooting those white geese with you than I would be shooting sore rails in 100 degrees. Yes, sir. I understand that. All right, I got a question for you, and, and it, uh, it seems like so many people have forgotten. But do you remember where you were? And what you were doing 18 years ago today? Oh, yeah, 100%. I was driving to work um, out at our new Melee office here, so one of our vet clinics. And uh, my wife called me and said, hey, are you listening to the radio? And I said, no. She said, you got to turn on. You know, this was before the second plane had crashed. And so I got dialed in. Well, my dad is a pilot. And at the time, he was flying for American. And wow. um, he was actually in New York flying out of LaGuardia. And so he was like, I was worried to tears that, that he might be one of the planes that was either, you know, had crashed or in the, pro you know, we didn't know what all was going to go on or how many of them were going to get hijacked and all that stuff. But he was right there in the whole mix of the deal because, remember, they were all like American and United flights um, and, uh so he was right up there in the center of it all, but luckily he he was good to go. Yeah, I tell you what, it that that was uh, I don't know anybody our age that doesn't know exactly where they were sitting today. It hit. I was sitting in a government meeting at Fish and Wildlife Service, bored to tears, and uh, when when somebody busted in the room and said, "Y'all need to turn on the TV," and we turned it yeah. on, and, and they were they were replaying it, but but then all of a sudden that second jet. Boom! Flew right into the second trade center, and it, yeah, it was shocking. the craziest time. I mean, you know, you always wondered how your grandparents felt when the Japs bombed Pearl Harbor, and then I knew. Right, right. it's scary. My kid, my kids were babies. You know, you start worrying about their future and what all is going to go on and stuff like that. But it's just, it's crazy. I mean, you know, uh, it's like the world just literally stood still, and it's, it, and it's it's amazing to me traveling around. You know, parts of the world. Uh, they all know about it. That was world news. I mean, it, it was it was a world event, not just not just American, but uh, what crazy times! I, yeah, I, don't you think funny. that's got to be? Don't you think that's got to be the most shocking uh, news 
of of our lifetime for our culture. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it, it's been a long time ago. I read somewhere last year that uh, children children going to college, starting college last year, were the first generation to learn about it at a historical event. Not as something that happened. Isn't that crazy? You know, see what I'm saying? It, it, it just is. it's weird. You know, That's crazy. but I'll I'll never forget it. I, I don't think uh, I don't think anything in my lifetime will will leave a mark or be as memorable as that as that tragedy. Not well, let's left. put it this way. I hope not. Oh, yeah. Isn't that the truth? Isn't that the darn truth? Well, it's, uh, yeah, tell me this. I, I remember, I, <laughs> I really enjoyed the podcast with you last week. I learned a, a lot more about you than I knew already. Um, you know, I, I don't think, I, I don't think I'll ever see you again that I don't remember you wearing a toga to take a final <laughs> exam. And uh, it ain't being the only thing to your name because everything else had burned down. But what uh, where do, where does the story go from there, Ira? Where where what are we looking at now? I think uh, I think Rocky wanted to kind of get into the transition from vet school to uh, to transitioning into be a veterinarian and kind of you know the the different steps along the way and what I was doing and sprinkle in some struggles and and some funny stories and and all that stuff so I got I got plenty of struggles and plenty of funny stories and plenty of infamy that's for damn sure good let let lay it on me well, I'd say you know I mean so I graduated there in May of 1995 uh, you know, I mean, graduating vet school is an accomplishment. I mean, everybody showed up. And it's a big deal. Well, all my classmates, you know, every one of my classmates, they had a job. They knew what they were doing. And they, bam, they went straight to work. What do you think old Ira did? I went to Alaska for six months. Did the, did, the, did the faculty and staff at the vet school throw a going away party for you? I think they pretty they much said, don't let the door hit you in the ass. Went <laughs> <laughs> uh, to Alaska for six months. That's yeah, that, I went that to Alaska like for something six everybody should do. Yeah. I was like, hey, man, you know, I, I've made it this far. Um, that I have no, I still have no commitments other than paying back student loans. And uh, I don't have any kids. I don't have a job. I don't have anything. It's the last time in my life that I'm going to be able to just go and do something and not have to answer to anybody. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I just up and left. And, uh, I mean, it was, it was probably the greatest period or dang sure one of them of my whole life. You know, we just went up there. And it was me and my brother and, and two girls that were in his vet class. And uh, we met up with some like-minded guys. And... Uh, we lived in tents and we lived in shacks and then we ended up renting a house in Sterling and uh man all we did was hunted and fished every day. I flew out of Fort Hood more times than I care to remember on, you know, remote rafting trips and, and uh did a, a fly in, drop off, uh caribou hunt with a bow, um on a on a with an airplane carrier. You know, we didn't have any money so we couldn't pay any guides or anything. We just I went to Fort Hood and talked to this mail route carrier and said, hey, where are you going? What are you doing? And uh, what are you seeing? He said, man, you know, last week I saw a few caribou migrating over here. And he goes, you guys pay me 
400 bucks, and I, I'll fly out to King Salmon and back. He said, if we find something we like, I'll drop you off at a lake. Um, I'll check on you when I can. And if you're ready to be picked up, you stake out a, a tarp, blue tarp square. Well, hell, the weather went shit. We didn't see him for a week, you know. So it was definitely <laughs> rough. And we showed up with some bear spray and a 44. We had like three cans of bear spray and a 44. And he said, uh, you're not bringing that bear spray anywhere near my plane. That's dang sure not getting on here. And that 44, just remember one thing. I said, what's that? He goes, five for the bear, one for you. Yeah. What, why didn't he want the bear spray on the on the plane? Ah, he was scared that it'd go off and it'd jack him all up, you know. Wow. So he was you, scared that it'd get depressurized or whatever. When y'all went to Alaska, did y'all just jump in the truck and drive out there? Man, I flew up there with a backpack, a pack frame, and some clothes and 500 bucks. That was it. How much? How much? How much time and planning did y'all put into this trip? Was it something you Dude. something you decided on a Friday night? You left on Monday, yes. or did you? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I'd already been up there once, so. But you know, we were in a to we were in a different area doing some different stuff. But you know, in Alaska, I don't know what it's like now, but back then, you know, everybody hitchhiked. Shit, people pick you up. You know, you just stand there on the side of the road with thumb out and. Somebody let you jump in the back of their truck. They weren't going to let you get inside. They'll, they'd let you get in the back. And uh, so that's kind of how we got around. Well, it was nice to be that young, wasn't it? Just young and carefree and jump on a plane and go to Alaska without a return ticket. Oh, yeah. That's, did, did there weren't any Ubers back there right, back then, I guarantee you. <laughs> no. Did you have a... Y'all just had an, your 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 itinerary was show up and then and then just take the day as it comes. That's it. Yep. Wow. Yep. And what 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 like what time frame? If you were up there for all the all that time, what what was the approximate time frame you were up there? The summer and fall? Yeah, I mean, I left in May. It was 1995, and I came home like the end of September. Holy cow. Yeah, I, so, I think I know. think I'd I think I'd have stayed. I, I I didn't I didn't go to Alaska. I always wanted to go to Alaska, and I never went to Alaska until my thirties, my late thirties at that. And and I was still sitting in Anchorage at the hotel, and my wife said, "What do you think?" And it was zero degrees. Was yeah. sitting in that hotel looking around and all that good stuff. I'm like, I think if I'd come out here in my twenties, I'd have never come home. Well, I it, almost it, did. I, I love I, Alaska. I had a job offer out there um, in Soldotna. Um, man, you got to remember, I mean, I was at, I was at a point in my life where I was at a Y. So either, you know, there was a big part of me back then that was nonconformist. I mean, I loved to hunt, man. I was hardcore about it. I'd lived in the friggin' woods and so part of me was like, I don't want to go back and be a conformist in the USA. Um, I'm just going to stay up here and, and do my own deal and all that. But then on the flip side, you know. There's that whole big world that's that's uh, trying to call you back, but on the other end, you're kind of wanting to do something different. And I had to make a choice, so ultimately, I decided to come home. Obviously, and it's probably best I did. I mean, there's no daggum women up there. There's no, you know, winter time. It's dark all the time. Um, you know, I mean, it takes a special person to live up there years on end. I think. 
it's a good place to visit. I, I was with Corey Lawford last week and uh, some boys in Michigan and, uh, yeah. you know, that whole bunch. And it's like, man, Minnesota and, and that whole northern tier and tier up in, here in Canada is so freaking beautiful this time of year. I think the waterfowl got a right idea, you know, start flying south before they break out the snow shovels. You know, when it starts getting into negatives for extended periods, and uh, I, I just don't want no part of that. You know what I'm saying? Mm, me neither. To visit, you know, but but I. Uh, so so did you? You went back home and and just started making a plan to get into practice veterinarian. Well, I came back home and uh, I still, you know, I hadn't even talked to anybody back here, but it didn't take long for me to. Uh, Get a job offer at a little a little uh, clinic in Higginsville, Missouri, and so Higginsville's a, a little rural town, pretty close to where we're building our new lodge now. So, you know, kind of uh, central Missouri, and um, so I got a job offer there. I was only you know like 20 miles from Grand Pass, which is where you know we we have a whole bunch of duck hunting there, and. Uh, so it was mixed animal practice, and uh, I decided to take the job, and I went to work for a guy named Don Case. Don had a, a one-doctor practice that he was expanding into two-doctor practice, so I show up, and they see me, and it's like when the the pride of lions sees their first baby gazelle on the, on the uh, prairie over there in Alaska. <laughs> I mean, this yep. family had owned this practice. For 17 years, and they'd never been on a family vacation before. My so, gosh. Yeah. And and his whole family, they all work there, okay? So I show up, and, uh, you know, they're just looking at me. I don't know. I don't know what's going on. And, and uh, they're looking at me thinking, they're all thinking, we're leaving on a family vacation. And I go walking in there green as can be. And uh, they, they say, okay, um, welcome. This is uh, Dolores. She's our receptionist. And here's our groomer. And we're leaving tomorrow and going to, I don't I think they went to Disney World or somewhere. And we're, we're going on family vacation. We'll see you later. I'm like, oh, well, great. Good for you guys. That's excellent. I had no well, idea. I'm, a, I'm, only, I'm only being half serious when I say this, but apparently uh, – the toga party and the fireworks show didn't come up before they left you with their practice. No, during your no, <laughs> no, no. It, neither did burnt, neither did uh, calling the cops on myself because I, I went my parents' house. Oh goodness! No, right. no they so were they out the door. Disneyland. I mean, I show up and they're like out the door, leaving to go on vacation and. I don't know the first thing about anything. I don't even know how to turn the X-ray machine on. You know, I I got a I got a seventy-year-old lady that knows how to answer the phones that doesn't know where anything is, and a groomer that's the same way. And I I don't even know. I know nothing. You know, they disappear, and I'm like, what in the world am I doing? And you know, I had quite a, I had a decent amount of small animal experience, but I had no large animal experience other than what I learned in school. And buddy, I was thrown to the wolves there for ten days or whatever it is. I mean, I was, I was dog paddling with no with is a quadriplegic for God's sakes. Yeah, it was bad. Make it, so, but you made it. Yeah. 
we made it. I don't think too much died that week. We damn sure didn't make any money. Um, I think basically everything that came in, I said, uh, here's some antibiotics. If it's not better in 10 days, give us a call because I knew he'd be back by then. Don't yeah. call me back before that. <laughs> oh, boy, that's good. that's good stuff there. Good information. Oh, yeah. So we, uh, so we survived through that deal, <coughs> and they got back. And, uh, man, you know, I, I don't know if it was just that we did everything or if it's because it was my first job or what, but there were just so many things that happened during that period of time. Um, you know, I, some things were different. Like, we didn't refer really anything back then being in a little small town. You know, we either fixed it or or it died. I mean, referrals still weren't really a big thing. I mean, he had the university and that was about it. And, uh, so, you know, we just tried to make do and fix everything ourselves, which, which honestly in the long run really made me a much better veterinarian. Um, you know, we'd take a stab at darn near anything and we didn't make any promises about it, you know, but heck I tried mm -hmm. stuff. I shouldn't have tried. I mean, we did, uh, we did cruciate surgeries back then for 75 bucks and uh you know they were pretty crude um but i did you know open chest heart surgery on a dog uh on on a couple different dogs that were puppies with you know heart problems or uh pda you know patent ductus arteriosus deal where you know you had to open them up and tie off this one but i mean real intricate surgery um and uh and then you know there was the juggling act of of being a mixed animal practitioner where, you know, you were on call all the time, so you'd be up all night in the wintertime, you know, uh, cutting calves out of, out of cows and doing C-sections and pulling calves and, you know, messing with, with everything under the sun in the middle of the night, crappy, you know, snow and, and uh, terrible weather, mud. And then and, you and know, it was just it, it was just as a, as a young student fresh out of school having done this. I guess it was no different than forestry or wildlife, other than it was a lot more technical and medical. You just had to teach yourself. I mean, they taught you just kind of the textbook stuff, but then you get out there in the real world and you're just slugging it out and figuring it out. Yeah, and the guy I worked for, I mean, he was great, just a great guy, salt of the earth guy. Um, but, you know, we were busy, man. I mean, he didn't have time to keep me under his wing for a lot of it. I mean, usually one of us was in the field doing all the all the beef cattle and dairy and what little bit of hog stuff there was. And I, I, I'm allergic to horses, so I tried not to do much of the horse stuff. Um, and then the other guy would be, you know, taking care of whatever was going on in the office, small animal-wise. And, and we had a, you know, we had a facility there where we could work cattle that were trucked in, trailered in through there also, you know, so we'd do like our breeding soundness exams and, and all that kind of stuff there. Um, and that's a whole nother ball of wax, you know. So, I mean, there's just all kinds of stories, but um, I, I remember, I'll tell you one here real quick. It's pretty funny. We had this, uh, we had a, a show dog. Uh, this This gal in town was a, a bulldog show person and so she had this really really high dollar uh you know bunch of ribbons uh stud bulldog and so bulldogs you know they, they can't breed on their own they can't have put you got to do a c-section on every one of them you know so they really 
they should be extinct. I mean, they shouldn't be allowed to, if, if it wasn't for vets, their bulldogs would all be gone in 15 years. Um, so this dog, we collected him all the time, you know, and then we'd ship the semen all over the country and freeze it and all that. And so this dog would come in the office all the time. As soon as they'd open the door, the do we collected the dog back on the x-ray table in the back of the clinic. That dog would go running through the office as fast as he could, and he'd be back there with his little short legs <laughs> trying to jump up on that x-ray table. I mean, buddy, all you had to do was look at him, and it was over. He was like a three-pump chump, buddy. It was You had what you needed, you were on about your day. <laughs> yeah. Golly. They, they, they didn't teach you that in vet school, did they? Uh, not really. And then sticking with <laughs> the converted theme, you know, I talked about breeding soundness exams. So we'd do all those at the office. So they'd bring these bulls to, you know, and we'd get them in our squeeze chute there. And you had this big electro ejaculator, okay? So this thing's like 15 inches long and as big around as a daggum uh, butternut squash. And you stick this up the bull's ass. Uh, sorry if I offend anyone with my language. And then you got this little rheostat that you that you with a dial on it. And so I mean, it takes it's about like anything, you know. You you can't just go cranking it up. I mean, you got to kind of work them into it, you know. Give them a little little kiss and some sweet nothings in their ear, and you start working this rheostat just a little bit, you know. And then you get a little more and a little more. And uh, you know, I mean, once you've done it quite a bit, you you kind of know what the rhythm is and all that stuff to get a, a decent collection where you can tell, you know, if one's still a good breeding animal or not. But yeah, we, we did all kinds of that crazy stuff, man. You talk about a screwed ass up world. You talk about, uh, animal abuse, man, we did some of it there. That's just one example. That's unbelievable. I mean, there, there's parts of your story that, that make me glad I, I stuck with forestry and wildlife. I'm not going to lie to you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Oh my gosh! Well, then, how long uh, did you how long did you work for? How long you got out of school and you took this job? How long did you work that first that first position there with that that veterinarian? Three years. I was there for three years, and you know it was during that period of time. So this would have been like ninety five, ninety six, ninety seven, right in there. And uh, this was just to just to put it in in a different uh, terminology for you, it was when bag phones first came out. So when I first took the job in 95, I mean, nobody had any sort of, you had a pager, that was it, right? And then maybe in 96, bag phones came out. So we got bag phones, you know. Well, I hated it because then, you know, you just couldn't get away from it, man. I mean, there, there were many nights where I'd never even make it home. You know, I'd be driving from one thing to the next, and that phone's ringing. I'd get mad, and I'd throw that whole big bag phone out the window in the ditch. You know, I was like, I'm done with it. I'm not answering this thing anymore, and I'd go home. And next day, I'd wake up and be like, what in the world have I done? I'd go driving down the road, looking in the ditch, trying to find my bag phone, go over there and dig it back out of the ditch and hope it still works, you know, plug it in. And, uh, but, I mean, it was... It was nonstop, you know, in the wintertime. That's when everything bad happens. That's when we have all our calves here. And, uh, I mean, shoot, you know, you you go all night with that, and then you'd show up at the morning, in the morning and see what kind of nightmares you had at the office, and then and then typically right back out in the field, although sometimes, you know, you'd be in, in the office a little bit. But uh, it, was a, it was an interesting time, that's for sure. 
um, you know, we did a lot of cattle work and, uh, there were times where I thought of me and my bosses, Marlon Perkins and, and what was his assistant's name there? You remember? No, I don't. Uh, Jim, it was Jim somebody. Was. Jim, Jim got all the fun stuff. Yeah. So I was sat in the truck. Jim, Jim jumped down and, and wrestled the alligators and stuff. Yeah, so what we would do, he had old Dodge single cab uh, with the vet box on the back. And so we'd get these, you know, down cow calls, you know, things that they hadn't gotten up in the crowd. They'd just be out in the pasture or whatever. So I'd get on the back of that vet box back there with either a lasso or a dart gun, you know, a blow gun. And he'd drive, and I'm holding on for dear life. And we'd be, you know, cow be ramming the truck because they get, you know, when they get low on oxygen, they get mad, you know. And so I'm up there trying to throw a rope like I'm some sort of, you know, rodeo cowboy. And uh, with that or shooting a a blow dart gun like I'm a Zulu up there trying to get this thing, you know, knocked out or cast down or whatever. And uh, we spent some time doing that. One time we had a a down cow, which, you know, she was trying to have a calf and she was wore out and all that. She's laying there. And so I... She's inside an electric fence, so I step over the electric fence, and I go up there and get a rope, and I'm trying to tie her up so she's casted, you know, she can't she can't move, really. Well, I get her about, I just start to work on my knot, and man, she gets up, and she starts coming after me while I'm running, and uh, I end up, I try to jump the, the electric fence, and I don't make it, so I end up tangled oh. all up in the electric fence. And this cow's on top of me, just goring the crap out of me. My boss comes over there, you know, and he gets the rope around her, and she falls down, and I'm pulling the electric fence off myself, you know, and we get we get the calf out and all that stuff a while later. And he goes, man, I guess that fence isn't hot, huh? And I go, no, man, it didn't shock me. And he walks over there and grabs it. He's like, God damn, that thing's hot. I, I guess I just had so much adrenaline going from that cow mauling me. I never felt it shocking me, I guess. Or grounded out or whatever. Hey, I, let me ask you this. Change, change the subject briefly. But, uh, you know, the 90s still got real wintertime back then. I know you were still a duck hunter. What what did what did all that calving during the wintertime and this new job and new career do to your duck hunting? Man, my duck hunting was, I did, I really didn't duck hunt that much then. I was just so busy, you know, with, uh, with working. Um, there were, there were some farm ponds and whatnot real close there that I'd hunt a little bit when I had some time. Uh, occasionally I'd, I'd schedule a morning off and go, uh, go over to Grand Pass and draw in, or, or we had some hunting across the river there on Sunshine Lake. And I'd go over there with some buddies of mine. We had a little blind on the city lake there in town. Um, so I, I had some, you know, I had several places that were real handy, like real close. Um, so if I did get some time, you know, I could run out there and give it a quick hour or what, whatever. But it wasn't, it certainly wasn't like, hey, old Ira's going to go hunt and I'll catch you when, when I show back up. You know what I mean? Right. That's the way, though, you know, what? I, I guess it's the same with anybody that takes their future career seriously. Is You know, it's not just... uh I mean, work comes first, career comes first. You got to pay your dues. Oh yeah. So, I mean, you yeah. got to put in your time. You know that. That's yeah. I can remember. I remember. I, I had a. Yeah, I remember. I had a. I had a invite to go to Kansas turkey hunting, 
and uh, I I'd put pencil to paper, and I thought the whole trip was going to cost me about four hundred and fifty dollars, and we were going to go out there for uh, probably three days, you know, maybe it was going to be four hundred dollars. And I remember calling one of my good friends that's a little older than me, and I was like, man, you know, this trip, I, I'd really like to go on this trip, but man, I don't know if I can afford it. And uh, well, needless to say, I ended up going, but. You know, it was it, that's that was the type of time stress and money stress that I was under back then. Just like most people are when they're, you know, 25 years old, you don't have any money and and you're, you know, you're busy trying to make it. You get it's that time of life. You got more time than money. Only if you're if you're thrown off into a new career and climbing ahead, you really don't have time either. Yeah, and like yeah, I said, I when I went it. on that Alaska deal, I kind of saw. I kind of saw which way things were going to be going, at least for quite a while. And so, uh, you know, I'm glad I went and I got some of that out of my system. But I had both eyes wide open that once I took that first job, it was going to be, it was going to be work first. It was. It's all about priorities, isn't it? Yeah. You won't be in life. Yep. I get that. That's a, and the reason the reason I thought to ask about the waterfowl hunting is is you know you put the timeline at ninety five ninety eight and it was ninety eight that the feds came out with this conservation order season. So yeah, that that's yeah. why I'm just trying to think of where you were with snow goose hunting preceding that. Yeah, no, I was snow goose hunting there. I mean, we had it was a major heart of the migration right there. I mean, man, we got a pile of them just right there, and I. I made I probably made I don't know fifteen hundred corrugated plastic silhouettes that I painted all myself, cut them all out myself, um, all that ran number nine wire through them. So I had a hell of a snow goose spread year one of the conservation order. Well, hell, I'd started it before that, you know, hunting them in the fall. Uh, but yeah, I was all in right off the bat, and had some good spring snow goose hunts, really good ones, you know. And then the other thing, real quick, 98, it reminds me, 98 was probably, and it was one of the best seasons and best duck, duck hunting I ever had in my life. We yeah, we were hunting a little place named called Mud Hole right on the north side of the Missouri River, and it was 330 acres of WRP. Well, not WRP. There wasn't any WRP back then. Moist soil. It was just a natural low swag there. And... um Oh my God, that place, every day of the season, you know, it was a warm year and it was wet. And uh, we had a new, we, new birds showed up about every seven, 10 days. And I mean, we picked, you could shoot whatever you wanted. You just, you know, you want to shoot four mallards and two pintail drake today? No problem. You want to mix it up with a widgeon tomorrow? No problem. You want to shoot a redhead? Have at it. I mean, it was just unbelievable. I, I think 98 was it 98 as I remember. I, I think I've got this right. Was the first year that I ever heard the term El Nino. I think that's right. Yeah. Somewhere around that time frame. And down down in Mississippi, it was it was dry, but you know we had some cold weather, and, and the ducks came down. But it, it just wasn't a whole lot of places they could get. And I was hunting public back then. I mean, I hunted public religiously, and and loved it. And um. But I can remember, uh, as a matter of fact, I remember that being the year uh, I killed one of the last black ducks I've killed in the state of Mississippi. It was the year 98. And um, But anyway, I, I just I just wanted to see where you were. I just wanted to kind of pull out just enough. Cause I, know, I know, you know, hunting is, is very important to your story. And I was just curious where you were in 98 with respect to the snow geese especially. Do you still have yeah, some you of know. those corrugated silhouettes? 
Yeah, I left a bunch up at my buddy's place up in the nook up on Hudson Bay. Um, but I I also uh I probably still have about I bet I have four or five hundred Oh boy, you made a bunch of them. Yeah, I bet I had fifteen hundred of them. My goodness. Yep. I mean we didn't have like up back then, you know, you fill your bed of your truck up with as many of those as you can get in there. What, a Johnny Stewart caller with a cassette tape deal and one speaker, and that was your deal. I can remember. I've, I've still got some Canada goose silhouettes. I cut out a sheet metal. I found some. They were tearing down some old greenhouse at Mississippi State University around that same period of time you're talking about. And, uh, yeah, I know it was. I was working for Mississippi State up until 98. And I took that sheet metal home and had this bright idea. I'm going to take a jigsaw, and I, I didn't realize it's going to take about 50 jigsaw blades to cut it, but I'm going to make some <laughs> silhouettes, some Canada goose silhouettes. And we had just bought a little beginner home in this little neighborhood, and it just moved in. And uh first night we were there, my neighbor come on and knocked on the door, and I said, well, it's kind of late for a welcoming party, but. You know, I'm, I'll take what I can get and open the door. Well, he was, man, he was already riding me about leaving the porch light on and it shine. And we, we just weren't good neighbors from that point on. Let me just tell you, that, that was my welcome to him. Well, so when I when I decide I need to cut that sheet metal, let me tell you, it's very, very loud cutting sheet metal with uh-huh. a jigsaw. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, I and would, I, would I would wear eye protection, of course, and I'd put in earplugs, and then I'd put muffs on top of it. Still couldn't hear a dead gum thing, you know, uh, but that jigsaw going, and I cut every one of them right under his back window. And, uh, oh but I, I, I still, and they work. I mean, they work. You know what? What few Canada geese we would shoot on those Mississippi River sandbars, they work fine. But I, yeah, I throw them away. I still got them. You know, yeah. I ought to, to bring so them on one of these old tear hunts one day. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Y'all to take them out and go shoot some geese open. That would be fun to go shoot some. You could probably pull it off up here in Canada this time of year. Oh well, yeah. I mean, you know, when when I used to hunt on Hudson Bay all the time, I just left about. And, you know, there's no hunting at that camp anymore. They've shut it completely down for ecotourism now. So all it is is polar bear viewing. There's no hunting operation there at all anymore. Isn't that crazy, man? It went from only being a hunting operation to now being no hunting and only ecotourism. And, you know, I'm Way sure of the world. Those, those decoys are still up there. I'm sure they got three tubs, uh, my old corrugated silhouette snow goose decoys up there. Probably selling them in the souvenir shop. <laughs> Might be. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> yeah, Lee. Well, I, we're, what? Just, just uh, a glimpse into a glimpse into next week. Where are we going next week with the story? Uh, well, <laughs> I mean, heck, we didn't even get into my vet stuff. Um, I don't know. Wherever Rocky wants to go. Um. I guess we'll just do a logical progression from there. I mean, you know, we still, we didn't talk about uh, my emergency medicine stint in Kansas City. Well, let's talk and, about it. Let's talk about it. I, you kind of, you kind of, uh, I had to take a break from the veterinarian story after after thinking about that that that, that bulldog running down the hall for his weekly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, well, here, so before we get back to the vet thing, uh, we, uh, uh, one one other real important thing during that time frame, so 1998, 1999, that's when I I started building my own spinning wing decoys out of uh, 
wired remote control cars. So I, you know, I'd go to Walmart and I'd buy a remote control car, take the tires off, take the axle out, take a piece of number nine wire, jab that through there, and then I'd cut uh, an oval piece of corrugated plastic that was white and I'd paint it black on the other side. And then, you know, we didn't know about putting them on poles or anything. So I'd either wire that thing to a stump or I'd set it on a dirt clot or whatever the case was. And, you know, it was wired. So you can only get like 15 feet away from the thing. And, you know, you could go forwards or backwards or whatever. And uh, so we'd pick the place we wanted to hunt just based on was there something I could wire set this car on. And boy, Katie, bar the door, buddy. You, you remember that stuff back then? I know you do. Yes. Yeah, you know, uh, the the first the first spinning wing decoy I had, I guess it was ninety eight. Uh, I had forgotten all about that being that time period, and a, a buddy of mine now deceased it, it made me one out of a kit car. Now I could get further than fifteen feet. It it had, and and it took me a while to trial and error. You know, because if I pull that trigger all the way, that those wings would go so fast, you'd think it's fixing to take off into outer space. And uh, and we realized way somewhere around I was yeah we we realized around mid range. That would be what the ducks would respond to. And the first time I, I, I first time I really remember using uh, this mojo, this this spinning wing decoy that that Tim made for me. I took it to uh, to be National Wildlife Refuge. Uh, some friends of mine got drawn. We went to a flooded timber spot there. Uh, it was Ian Munn, whom I still hunt with, and one of his professor buddies. And I set this thing on on a pole. Like I'd heard you supposed to do, and I turned it on, and they laughed, and they they hollered, and they goaded me about this this funny looking thing, and and to make matters worse, the the, the wings had been kind of glued on, and midway through the before we'd even fired a shot, midway through it, one of the wings fl- flinged off and sunk in the water, in a, in about four foot of water, never to be seen again, and man did I catch it! I mean, they gave me shit until that first flock of ducks flew over. And it looked like they'd hit the short end of a rope when they saw that flash and wing swinging one arm like, "Hey, y'all come on down here." And we we yeah. limited on green heads right there over that. And before the end of that hunt, they were they were they were measuring and and calculating and doing so they could make their own spinning wing decoys. You know, because in '98 you couldn't you couldn't you couldn't just go and buy one or order one or no. go to the store. If if you didn't if you didn't figure out how to make one or come up with one on yourself, you just didn't have one. Yeah. Yes, like I said, how, my how did they work? Cars, how did they work back it, then? How did yours work? Oh, unbelievable. I mean, you just turn that thing, you know, and here they came, just like you said. And the other thing, you know, we were we were doing a little, a little bit of field hunting. You know, there were no that was right when uh, Ron Latchall came out with those final approach eliminators, and that was another game changer that came right then too. You know, so I remember when I first had my little cars, we were still hiding under burlap. Then it's probably two or three years later we ended up buying some layout blinds. You know, that was another big one. So, well, but, that, that uh, was very, you know, just just tripping down memory lane about that era, the end of the '90s. You know, mojos and the conservation order season and layout blinds. Avery Avery was just coming onto the scene, good. You know, with a lot of their their uh, new yeah. and innovative type products, and shortly after that, their decoys. I mean, that was really a uh, Kind of, kind of an epic time, wasn't it? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, some major game changers right then. Major game changers for sure. So, sure was. I, I you know, it, it's just, uh, I just, boy, that's a nice. That, that is a nice place to end right here. Just to think about.
uh, to end on a on a high note. Uh, boy, what a great time to be a duck hunter back in those days. There was no telling what was going to come out next. That was definitely interesting. That's for sure. Uh, you want to you want to get back into the vet deal again next week, or you want to kind of run through some yeah. of that now? What you whatever, whatever you want to do. I don't have anywhere to go. Rocky, Rocky says Rocky's, Rocky Rocky ain't here to stop us, so we can go wherever you want to. <laughs> All right, we'll pick up the pace a little bit and just kind of tie that up, and that way uh, Rocky can tell us where we're headed next week. But So <laughs> I think in 99, 98, it was in 98, I shifted gears, and I I, uh, oh, I was dating a gal in Kansas City, and I was tired of being on call all the time. So I said, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a different job. I'm going to go to Kansas City. I don't want to be on call. So I decided to become an emergency veterinarian. God dang, that was like out of the frying pan into the fire. I mean, uh, you know, I'd been working in this mixed animal practice, and we did some small animal stuff. But you know, it was pretty, it was pretty run of the mill. We didn't get, I mean, we did some cool surgery stuff, but on the medicine side, we weren't like bookworms, you know, uh, saying all brushed up on everything necessarily. And I went to work at the uh, emergency clinic, and all I can say is. Thank God for good technicians because they kept me afloat during that period. And also for textbooks, you know, there was no internet or any of that. You weren't searching for, you know, hey, help me figure this out. You, I had my nose in the books all night long because I was scared to death. I mean, you know, when you work at the emergency clinic, you see the worst of the worst over and over and over again. And so, uh, Man, I mean, it was it was really good for me because, you know, it's the middle of the night. You don't have anybody to bail you out except for your techs, and you better figure it out because everybody's watching. So the way that works is all all the veterinarians around there, they decide where they're going to refer their cases to. So if you suck, it doesn't take very long. They're like, man, don't send your dog over there. They got some new guy that doesn't know what in the world he's doing. You know, they're all getting your reports, and they're all kind of grading you on what you did. So dang sure didn't want to mess up if you did you weren't going to be working there very long and uh, so i did that for about another two and a half years and man it really made me mature as a small animal clinician you know there's a ton of stories there uh but but you know probably the biggest the biggest uh takeaway from my emergency vet days was fear because i mean i was motivated by fear i dang sure didn't want anyone you know, who was a regular veterinarian calling me up and chewing me out saying, you know, we put our faith in, in you and look what you did. You, you you did a bad job here. So I did fear, a lot. Fear is a good motivator. Fear is oh, a good yeah. motivator. Yeah, it was a way bigger motivator for me at that time than money was. That was for sure. And then during, so I do that at night and on the weekends and then during the day, it, now, this this is when I shifted gears. So during the day when it was not a hunting season, I did relief work for everybody in Kansas City. So I'd work all night long. I'd work all day long. I was working like 110 hours a week, making making money hand over fist. And But, but putting in last time, I mean, I was putting in a lot of work. Then when hunting season rolled around, I didn't do any relief work. I cut it all off and I hunted. I'd work at night and on the weekends and then I pretty much hunted all, all you know, every morning uh, during the week. So I got in a whole lot of hunting time again then. And uh, so that was a great period. I mean, I did a lot of hunting, made a lot of money. Um, I gained a ton of experience. And working at all those different clinics, you know, I probably did relief work for 15 different clinics in Kansas City. It gave me such a broad base 
of uh, experience of, okay, what do I like the best about what this clinic does? What do I hate about what this clinic does? What do I like about this? So I just kept kind of a mental checklist of all the things that I wanted to take with me and incorporate when I started my own deal and the things that I dang sure didn't want to do. So I had a really good vision of the direction I wanted to be going when, when I did my own deal. Um, so I, I, I would, and at the same time I was drawing up a business plan and working a prospectus for either buying or starting a clinic in Kansas city. That was my plan or outside of Kansas city. So in 2000, <laughs> my parents both got sick. My mom had breast cancer. My dad had a pituitary adenoma, which is kind of a little brain tumor thing, but I mean, more hormonal issues than really like, oh my gosh, you're going to die from brain cancer. Um, but anyway, I moved back to St. Louis uh, and Aaron was here working to, uh, you know, basically just be back with my family. And uh, so I scrapped the Kansas City deal and we ended up buying a practice here. And then we built, and so we bought one in 2000 and then we built one in 2001. And when I say built one, we were in a, a strip mall there, you know, if we had a nice space and a nice office. And, uh, so then I guess the takeaway from this period of time was it's a good thing I'd made quite a bit of money before because I went about nine months with no pay, including working at the emergency clinic in St. Louis at night because, you know, startups are just tough, man. Any startup, unless you're just extremely fortunate, you're, there's two things that are pretty much guaranteed to happen. One is that you're going to work the living daylights out of yourself. And two is that you're not going to make any daggum money. I mean, just when you think you're starting to make some money, that's when all the bills are just piling up and all you're doing is robbing Peter to pay Paul. And, uh, you know, in the veterinary world, it takes a, it takes a long time to dig out of that hole. So we went like nine months with no paycheck and, uh, sleeping at the office and all that before things we finally started eking out a little bit of money to where we could start paying ourselves again, you know. So to borrow from um, to borrow a little bit from Rockies, uh, and we're we're running out of time, so I think that's a good stopping point. Sure. But to borrow from to borrow from Rockies foundational principles. You know, a lot of what I've I've listened to and heard you talk about in this podcast that I think anybody could apply, whether it's veterinarian or wildlife or forestry or hunt consultant or, or just anything any anybody listening whatever your job is you know you you educated yourself you became an expert you uh you weren't scared to, to just absolutely throw yourself into it hook line and sinker and just, and just 24 7 if that's what it took you put in the time you made the commitment but then but then you, you still had plan that you developed you know to accomplish a a, a specific vision and that that's a real life lesson i think you know that that i've heard you say today yeah, I mean, the other thing that, that I, I think people should think about, young people, is what do you have to lose when you're young? What are they going to take from you? You know, you Absolutely. strike out, big deal. I mean, you don't have anything to lose anyway. So take your risk when you're young, but, but work hard and have, you know, good vision and, uh, you know, prepare yourself, plan and prepare yourself and then persevere, you know, work hard and make it happen. And if it falls apart, I, I, there you go. I mean, start over again. Especially, like I, I, and I, I would say, I would say, I, I agree a hundred percent. Especially 
when you're young and you have so little to lose. But you know what? Uh, listening to Lee Chose last week, you know, quitting his quitting his job when he was in his forties. My, myself quitting quitting a government job when I was in my forties. You know, it's never too late. But at some point in time, unless you're born on third base, and I know you weren't, I would. A lot, a lot of folks we know that are very successful were not. You're not going to get where you may want to be unless you're willing to take a risk. Would you agree with that? You've got to take a risk. You got to. There, there's no shortcuts to it. Unless you're born on third base, there's no shortcuts to home plate. Unless you're willing, to, unless you're willing to dig in deep and uh, and take a risk. That that that's yeah, just. That, that, I think that's a good stopping point, Ira. One other thing, just to repeat it. I mean, follow your vision, do good planning, and then persevere and follow through. And you know, if you fail, hey man, you had a good plan, you gave it your all. But you're probably not gonna fail. You're not gonna fail. Not if you pour yourself into it. You may you may you may just change directions. That's the way I look yeah. at it. You know. Thank you, Ira. I enjoyed it. All right, me too, buddy. We'll talk to you here in a week. Hopefully the old bronchitis will be kinda worked out and uh the weather will cool off a little bit. You just keep on shooting them for the rest of us poor saps that are working okay. Oh, don't worry. I'm I'll 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 shoot mine and yours. All right, sounds good. Wow, what a great interview with with Ira. Or hey, let's start that over. Three, two. Wow, what another great part to the episodic series, the innovator with Ira, and and of course you, Ramsey. Man, that uh, if you don't walk away with something from that, sheesh. I don't know what to tell you. Mike, I've said it a million times, you know, one thing I truly love about my life and where this, this, this odyssey in life has taken me is just the people I come in contact with and because and, and, they're inspirational. I mean, you know, and, and, it, and it, you, look, you look at a, one thing a lot, of your, a lot of your podcast people have in common is how they took risk and they laid it on the line and they worked hard. And by the time everybody knows who they are, Ira Mo Marsh McCauley, everybody knows who he is, but you don't really you don't really see the hard work and dedication and the risks that went into being where where he wanted to be. But we're starting to see that now, and, and I, I just oh, uh, yeah, it's a another like I said another great part in this series, part three of the Innovator with with Ira. What a what a great part, Ramsey. Be careful in your travels. Really enjoyed it. I want to thank you for being here and Ira for being here to tell that part of the story, part three. And also, we want to thank all of you that listened to this edition of the End of the Line podcast, powered by DuckSouth.com. <laughs>